Okay, this is um, the Internet Strategies uh, Fall 2011 uh, interview with uh, Paul Marty, take two. Um, we thank you very much, Paul, for uh, rescheduling with us. And um, let's just launch right into the question that we tried to, to uh, record the first time, which was um, earlier this semester we read your 2000 paper museum uh, websites and museum visitors before and after the museum visit. And that was in 2007 before the mobile web um, really uh, took off and got going. Um, have your views uh, changed since then and in what way? Great. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Um, and I'm really happy to be here. So uh, uh, thank you to everybody who's listening to the recording. Uh, if I had been smart, I would have looked up that paper in between last week and this week. <laughs> it's been a few years since I read it myself. Uh, but I, uh, what I said last week is the same thing I'll say, I'll say today, is that if I, if I recall my arguments correctly, what, what I was arguing in there is the importance of museums setting up a, an ongoing relationship where what the visit, museum visitor does on the website, for instance, prior to the visit encourages them to want to go visit the museum in person, and what happens in the museum itself encourages them to want to go back to the website afterwards and um, see what's going on there, follow up after the visit. And I think the, the advances in mobile computing are really, well, A, they're making that, that, that virtuous cycle there a lot easier to achieve, and B, they're, they're blurring the distinctions between uh, on-site and, and online. Now, of course, that, that's really nothing all that new. There, there have been people exploring mobile computing in museums now for well, at least 15 years, and, um, and a lot of that has been looking at the, the blurring these distinctions between online and on-site. And I think last week I mentioned some, some very early work done by Riti Galani at the University of Newcastle uh, looking at um, what happens when people co-visit a, a exhibit together where one person is in the gallery, in the museum, uh, using a handheld computer to communicate with, a, with a, another person who's looking at the same exhibit online on the museum's website, and they're chatting back and forth about what they're looking at. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of potential there, I think, for for blurring those, blurring that line, and I think a lot of the great things that are happening with mobile computing are really uh, helping museums reach out to their visitors uh, more more than before. Uh, and this, I, I think, probably because I tend to write about it a lot. Somewhere in that article, I must have talked about the importance of shifting from looking at the visitor in the life of the museum to the museum in the life of the visitor. And mobile computing is a great way of doing that because you can really look at how the museum's resources are used in the visitor's lives no matter where they happen to be. Because uh, you're, you know, you're always on. Or as my seven-year-old used to say, you have the internet in your pocket. So there you have it. Um, so so um, mobile technology is is been much more than a, a standalone type of of uh, of website because there were, well, one of the other things that we're learning in designing websites is that um, what works on a on a desktop or a laptop platform does not necessarily work on on a mobile device and so the question then becomes um, does the website, you know, do you have two things then if you're the museum? Do you have a, a website for the, you know, 
the large screen kind of desk sedentary uh, experience or the tiny little screen that you're carrying around. Is it a nice extension, as as the person who wrote this question, uh, a nice extension to the website or um, something or entirely different? Yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a good question, and I would excuse me, I would I would go beyond the, the website and the mobile device, and you throw in, uh, should you have a second life presence? Do you have a Facebook page? Do you uh, do you look at how you interact with your visitors through social media? And all of these are going to require different forms of interaction. Uh, it's absolutely right to say you don't interact the same way on a standard standalone web page as you do on a, on, a, on a mobile device. Even if you're just looking at how a web page displays on a mobile device, you have to think about the mobile version of the web page very differently from a design perspective. And of course, if you're actually interacting through an app that's been custom built for iPhone or Android or what have you, well, then it's completely different design mentality. Um, I think it really speaks to the need for museums and really any kind of cultural heritage organization to have designers on staff that are comfortable working in so many different media and understand the user's perspective within so many different media. It's, it's not easy to find designers uh, that can work across those, those media boundaries. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's important to be, to be constantly thinking about those differences and being on the lookout for people that can help you overcome them. Okay. Um, you talked briefly about the Google Art Project in the um, in the TED video that that uh, I had folks watch. <laughs> I don't know um, what everybody thought about that TED video. It was the first time I'd ever done anything like that, and it was the very first TEDx event that they did at this university. I was the very first speaker at that TEDx event, so I was extremely nervous. <laughs> you didn't come off that way. Well, um, it, it was fun, but uh, you know, it's one of these things where. Um, you know, the TEDx event is mostly no, no notes, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, I, I think I forgot like an entire series of examples I wanted to put in at one point. So hopefully it didn't look too disjointed. <laughs> so but anyway, so in, in that talk, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah do, you, do, you, do you think using this virtual tour type technology is something users visiting museum collections would want to see? And is the technology economically feasible for museums to incorporate into their sites? And I guess what the um, what the questioner is really asking is that obviously some of the bigger museums, uh, you know, with huge endowments and everything, um, it's it's they, they can pretty much dabble in whatever kind of technology uh, they want to. But is the smaller museum um, going to be able to pull something like this off, and and is, then I'm guessing where this person is going, will we have um, museums that are the haves and the have-nots technologically? Yeah, I, this is an argument that I that I make all the all the time. Um, <clears throat> the large museums, the ones that have a tremendous amount of money. Well, well, first of all, as a university professor, I'm extremely jealous of them. I'll go ahead and get this on the record right now. You know, if I come up with an idea for a project, I've got to write grant proposals. I've got to get my dean to buy in. You know, et cetera, et cetera. I I, I have no slush piles of money running around, right? Um, and so I, I'm jealous of people at the large museums that actually have a technology budget, where if they come up with an idea, they just go ahead and do it. They don't have to write a grant proposal and wait a year to find out if it gets funded. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's, it's marvelous for them to be in that situation. And people who work at a small, medium-sized museum, you know, they, they don't have those kinds.
kinds of opportunities. If they want to do something, they've got to write a grant too, right? Um, so I think there's a, a burden or responsibility of some sort on the on the larger museums to try to make sure that, that, well, that the lessons that they are learning from the experiments they were able to do are being passed on so that other people can learn from their mistakes and figure out what, what's best to do. Uh, a really good example of this is um, Second Life. Um, I, I mentioned it earlier, so that's why it's in my, it's in my head. Uh, you know, Second Life is certainly, I think, very much waning. Uh, but it's back when Second Life was all the all the hype. You know, all these museums were saying, "Well, you know, we we we've got our physical space, we've got our online space. We're spending all the time trying to keep our Facebook pages up, and now we got to build Second Life space. I mean, who's going to do this? We don't have the time." And I remember. Um, talking with people about this and people, and people saying it's really almost uh, unfair for, for the museums to, to, to even be thinking about this to the ones that they can't afford to do it. Um, what, what we're dealing with here are, are rising expectations um, on, on the parts of the professionals as well as the, as the museum visitors. And they often rise to a point where it is extremely, um, oh, that's not the word I want, uh, um, inappropriate is not the right word either, uh, but um, um, well, we'll skip it. But I think to think of it this way: you know, so many people in museums have been wrestling with this problem of, wow, we've got to get an inventory together of our collections. We've got to know what we have. We don't have any time to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And we're finally getting this inventory put together, and it's not going to be done yet. But now it's got to be available online so people can see it there. So we've got to handle this problem. And oh, guess what? We've got this inventory online. It's still really kind of incomplete, but it turns out it's got to be put online in a format that can be accessible by other people, so that it can be contributed to some sort of open archives. Uh, open uh, archives initiatives and repositories and we've got to convert into this format and then you know then it's not even good enough and then, and then suddenly people are like well you know what we also need to do is we've got to get user generated metadata in there we have to get our users involved in adding value to our collections and we got to add some social tagging features and so you know it never stops it can go on forever and your your small to medium-sized museums they simply don't have the personnel to keep mm -hmm. up with these rising expectations and um, and the first part of your question asks whether or not the whether or not the visitors want it. Well, you know that's going to vary from person to person. But there are a lot of people out there that want everything, right? And they want it all for free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the expectation is that if they go to the museum's website, they're going to find it all there, right? And the museum's going to have a uh, Facebook site. It's going to be costly updated. And the museum's going to have a second life presence. The museum's going to have multiple mobile apps to do all these really cool things. But for a lot of museums, it's just simply impossible. To, to live up to those expectations. So you have to pick and choose. So you really have to get to the heart of what's the, what's the mission of your organization. Um, and someone said to me years ago when I was doing a, a series of interviews with a museum information professional, something uh, that's resonated with me for years, that the, that the core value of a museum is not the management of information technologies. You know, it's the creative use of information technologies to accomplish the museum's mission. And, uh, and it's easy to forget that when you're faced with all of these technological changes. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I really like that last quote. Um, now, speaking of, of that, um, I had a question here about you know, mobile, zap, mobile apps and, and how they allow people to carry the museum in their pocket. 
but it also allows them to carry into the museum a lot of distractions, you know, TV, games, and, and other things. And this was a question that specifically came to mind when I was watching a family go through um, the West Point Museum, and um, everyone was engaged, but, you know, the the teenage son who was head down into the cell phone, uh, I think he was playing Angry Birds. <laughs> so, can you know? Can museum apps compete with other apps, or are we simply fishing the same pool of museum goers and people who are into museums who just happen to have smartphones? In other words, are we expanding? Are we really expanding our pool of people of you know, people who have an iPhone going, oh, look, there's, you know, a museum I hadn't considered, or are we, you know, just being there for the person who already knows our museum and going, hey, cool, the museum that I like has got uh, an app. Does, does no, that I, question I understand understand the question. Yeah, no, it does. Okay. It's, a, it's a very tough question, right? And I'm not sure, I'm not really sure that we have good data to, to answer that question. Um, I'd, I'd have to look into that in in, in more detail. Um, I think I think at one level the the, the argument is, is is sound that that we're probably not attracting a whole bunch of new art uh, new audiences right now through the through the mobile media. You know we're probably getting the people who already. I don't think people are going out and buying a new iPhone just so they can use our museum apps. Is is basically where where I'm going with that. Um, uh, yeah, things keep changing, though. Uh, you know, I remember uh, my dad's 91 years old, and I, I remember 10 years ago having a conversation with him about the internet. You know, trying to trying to really sort of get a lot of these ideas across to him, and trying trying to explain to him why did, why does he want actually probably more like 15 years ago, right? Um, why why does he want to get on? And I had a very hard time getting giving him a compelling reason as to why he wanted to you know have an internet connection and a web browser and look at websites. And we couldn't think of anything in his life that would actually make it worthwhile. And the thing that convinced him, and now has him on the Internet 10 hours a day, is the fact that he could read international newspapers on the Internet. As he's French, born in Paris in 1920, and um, certainly by the mid-1990s, it was getting very hard for him to keep up on the international news through more traditional media. And when he learned that all these newspapers had all these websites, that's what got him on. So we don't know what the hook is going to be that's going to get our visitors to jump onto the mobile computing bandwagon. I think for sure the vast majority of them are already on it for some other reason. I don't think we can compete with angry birds, no, no matter how hard we try. Um, uh, if someone doesn't already have the iPhone, they'll buy it for angry birds before they buy it for a, for a museum app. And the other part of the question about, about the distractions uh, is you know the the key thing there is to, is to make whatever app we have so engaging that people want to use the app as an interface to our collections, whether they're in the museum or, or not in the museum. Uh, I'm working on a project here in Tallahassee that uh, has uh, elementary school students using iPad apps in the science museum to gather uh, research data, and one of the one of the concerns that some of the reviewers raised when we were seeking funding for this from federal funding agencies was that, boy, these kids are just going to play games on these iPads, right? They're not, they're not going to, they're not going to use the app, blah blah blah. And of course, we can, we can lock out the games, right? 
but it turns out that we really haven't had to because we the app that we built for them is a <clears throat> is a data gathering app that, that frankly the kids find really fun. All right, the the app is is encouraging them to spend more time working with the museum's collections. It's a it's a living museum collections that are studying the animals, and the app is prompting them as to what to look for and to record the behaviors that they see. So they're actually a lot more engaged when they have the app in front of them than if they were just standing there watching. When they just stand there and watch, they get kind of bored after a little while. When they've got the app, they're constantly like, oh, well, when's this cat going to do this? And is this panther going to do this over here? And I really would like to be able to check off this particular thing on the checklist, right? And they're, they're watching very intently to complete this, uh, this activity. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, we, it's, it's not designed as a game. It's like a science worksheet, but you can see the kids often thinking of it like a game, right? They, they want to check off all the boxes. They want to find the stuff. So, so building an app that engages your audience, whoever your audience might be, with your collection, whatever your collection might be, is, is part, of the, part of the challenge there. Okay. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, and uh, we had a question um, one of my classmates uh, says he works at a place that is struggling with the social change that you talked about in your TED presentation. Some people in decision-making positions still believe that it's, quote, our stuff. And he's trying to show them that we need to uh, meet people where they are. Um, can you elaborate on how you approach this topic in the face of resistance in the past? And can you speak to how you think this social change is unfolding? And I can tell you that I know exactly what he's talking about because mm -hmm. I get a lot of resistance from the authority, you know, the the museum as authority crowd in uh, in my museum as well. So, <coughs> right. Well, I mean, there are a couple of ways we can go with this. Um, I mean, certainly the the museum as authority cr uh, crowd is a is a is, is, a, is um, well, it can be a problem if you're trying to move away from that. Um, uh, I remember this must have been '03, maybe. I was trying to get funding to do a sense-making study to look at how visitors to a local museum were making sense out of the museum's exhibits with respect to their everyday lives, to see how different uh, socioeconomic groups you know, reacted differently to the different exhibits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I really spun it as a visitor study thing where I thought we'd the museum would learn a lot about, um, about their visitors this way. Well, in, in the rejection, uh, one of the reviewers wrote, which is one of my favorite rejection comments I've ever gotten, with a person who I, I clearly touched a nerve. They clearly were anti these sorts of studies. And they wrote in their, in their review comment that they don't care what the visitor thinks about their exhibit. The museum curator's job is to tell the visitor what to think. And that's pretty much important. So there are still a lot of people out there who believe that. Uh, I, I really don't believe that myself, but there are a lot of them out there. Uh, and it's, it's a, I mean, and they're all very nice people, right? But it's a philosophical difference as to what the, the role of the museum is. And if you've got that philosophical difference in your institution, I'm not, I'm not sure what all you can do to, to overcome it. Um, there, it, it's sort of similar to the problem. It used to be relatively common 
that, you know, you go to work in a museum and you just quickly discover that each of the different curators is in charge of obviously a diff each a different section of the collection, and they all hate each other, and they won't talk to each other, and they refuse out of principle to use the same collections management systems, nor are they at all willing to use the same metadata standards, right? So you end up with this fragmentation of records across the museum. And uh -huh. there's really nothing that the registrar or any kind of information professional can do to solve that problem, right? And you can't you can't go up to the curator and say, hey, we're all going to use this metadata standard now, okay? Right? And they're they're not going they're not going to agree. The only way that problem is going to resolve is if the museum's director says to each of those curators, we have to get past these differences, right? We all have to agree upon the same system that we're going to use, or else we're not going to be able to move our our information systems forward. Do you see the point that I'm making? Oh yeah. I'd like to jump in here just because I work Please. I work at one of these large institutions, the National Museum of American History, uh, which has a wide spectrum oh. of of interest in the public <laughs> or non interest right, of course. in the public. Does Judy still work there? Judy Grable? Yes, she's my boss. <laughs> oh well, say hi to her for me. I haven't seen her in years, but uh, oh yeah, we had some fun um, together back in the day. She's now the associate director for outreach, education, and public programs. And oh, New fantastic! Media, which is where I work is under her. I was out there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would say it was like oh three or something, doing some usability stuff with her, and we had lots of fun. Uh, yeah, well, if you're in town, you should definitely stop by and talk to her because we're doing some interesting things. But but I, I was going to say my approach has been, um, and I've only been there eight years, and until I'm there for 20, I'm still a newbie. Uh, right. But, but uh, our approach has sort of been to find the curators who, who have an interest in those kinds of things and work on those first projects with them and then kind of peer pressure other people. <laughs> and that doesn't work. On, on the really hard and fast, I really don't care, you know, I'm the expert. But mm -hmm. for the people who are kind of on the fence, I think seeing models that are being done by their peers that they respect, even if there is some healthy competition, or maybe because of that healthy competition, then, make, then makes them see how it might apply to their work and be, become more interested. So that's one way to go about it. So you start with the low-hanging fruit, the people who, who are interested in trying some new things out, and then you know, showing by example why you might Absolutely. want to do some of these things. And, and not everybody has to buy in. Uh, you know, it's it's not an all or nothing situation. You can do a lot of great outreach and visitor involvement with just a, a portion of the of the institution. Um, but uh, but yeah. Uh, was, were there any other parts of that question that I missed? No, I think uh, I think you covered it. Um, How did Judy for me? <laughs> Will do. Oh, thank you. Um, let me see. Um, are there any negative aspects to technology and social media? Um, where do the museum draws? Uh, where where does the museum draw the line between? Too much technology, uh, technology in the in the gallery, and not enough. Um, well, let, let's take the first part of that first. Are there any negatives of technology and social media? Oh my God, yes. I mean, every day I wish that I I weren't accessible to so many different people in so many different media. 
you know, I, just for, just from the perspective of looking at how academia works, you know, I look back at professors 30 years ago, right? I mean, the phone might ring every now and then. Somebody might send you a letter in the mail, right? <laughs> but, but this idea that people, you know, people are pinging you on Twitter and there's questions coming across your Facebook feed and there's hundreds of emails coming in every day. I can spend all of my time doing nothing but answering questions. And there are many days that go by that that's all I do. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, it's an old joke, right? But, I mean, where's the technology that stops people from, from reaching me? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it's kind of funny because, um, you know, I'm very much, I mean, I'm not a Luddite at all. I'm very much, uh, you know, early adopter, jumping on all these bandwagons, getting interested in this, this, and this is, you know, this is what I do, and this is what I promote, and all of these things. But I'm also very open to the fact that it's caused me to, to fragment myself uh, tremendously. Right, you know, constant multitasking um, to a point where, if I'm sitting in a faculty meeting, right, I, I, I I've got to have my laptop with me. I mean, if I go an hour without checking my email, I start, I start, you know, get the jitters and the shakes, right? Hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's worrisome to think about the impact of all these social media and different and different. Um, different channels that we have open all the time. So do you, do you think um, that that, that um, then translates that the museum, like the institution, because all of its individual members or, or employees are somewhat distracted, that that kind of translates that the museum is also somewhat distracted? Absolutely. And what we what we have to hope in this situation is that we have this balancing act between the technologies that are pulling us in multiple directions and the technologies that are helping us do our jobs faster. Right? right. Uh, I mean, just look at the technologies we have available to accomplish things. Uh, something that the students in my class this year may say all the time is that every year the barrier for adopting, the barrier you need to get over to adopt a particular technology gets lower, and the reward that you gain for crossing that barrier gets higher. Right. I mean, look, 10 years ago, if you wanted to run a blog on a website, how much extra effort, how much effort you would have to put into that to do that? You want to start a blog today, right, go to WordPress. You're done. <laughs> you want to run a blog on your own server, download WordPress, install it in five minutes. You're done. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a completely different world in, in which we live. So, so I, I hope that that balancing act um, uh, continues. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we don't have to keep writing up copy on typewriters and using whiteout when, we're, when we make typographical errors to get to get our answers out to people. Um, but it, it does feel like we're in a we're in a race on the two sides: is technology helping us, is technology hurting us? And I don't know which one is going to 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 win in the end. Um, but I, I think it is an exhausting situation to be in. Um, I think what whether it's a person or an institution, you, you sort of take comfort in the fact that you're you're, you're helping a lot more people than you could before, right? You're, you're reaching out to many more people. Um, but the sheer, the sheer numbers can be, um, can be overwhelming. Uh, funny, I was just thinking about this today. Uh, in my, in my older son's second grade class tomorrow, I'm going to go and I can't even remember how this happened, but I'm going to go and talk to them about the caves at Lascaux in France. <laughs> so I was looking up pictures and stuff, and it reminded me that in, uh, when the when the Chauvet cave was discovered, well, I would say that was like mid 1990s, right? Um, the French government put like four really low quality JPEG pictures on a server somewhere 
of of the cave paintings. And this was about ninety six, let's say, um, and the ninety five. And the server was was brought to his knees. And I, I remember reading a quote from someone in the French Ministry of Culture saying uh, they had no idea. They had no idea that so many people would access those four JPEG images on the server that it would bring their server down. And, and that's when they realized that this that this online meeting was just going to be huge and allow them to reach so many different audiences that never would have been possible before. So I, I look at those examples and, and I think, you know, it's amazing what we're reaching today. It's amazing the, the impact that we're having on the world. Absolutely mm -hmm. astonishing. And if the price that we have to pay for this is that we're all going slightly insane because our brains and our institutions are being fragmented into so many different pieces, I, I, I hope it's worth it. Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about this story the last time, and I wanted to bring it up again mm -hmm. um, because it was a fun story. Um, it was the um, um, you told the story about scanning the artwork for the Google goggles. Oh yes, yeah, Google goggles. And those are very nice docents. If they ever listened to this, they were so nice. They were so nice. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, they, nobody warned them. You know, I mean, can you imagine? There's a group of museums, computer technology professionals, descending upon your museum, and they don't warn you. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, the, uh, you, you, you mentioned that many museums are using Flickr Commons and other tools to tell their uh, virtual vi visitors, um, you know, do so here it is, do something with it. Um, but it seems that uh, many museums tell their physical visitors the exact opposite. Um, how can museums encourage more interactive in interaction inside the museum walls via digital technologies um, without snapping photos um, and without incurring the wrath of a copyright. Right. Well, you know, there's lots of big issues here. I mean, one, first of all, like with that story of the Google Goggles, I don't think anybody would have, would have raised an eyebrow if I had been snapping pictures of the label. Right? It was merely the fact that I was taking pictures of the paintings. Now, the paintings themselves were all in the public domain. I, I, if we're going to get legal about this, I mean, you guys read Bridgman versus Correll, right? Um, and, and the ramifications of those, of those decisions. I mean, they, you know, if, if a painting is in the public domain, a picture of the painting can, is also in the public domain. And a lot of people have been really pushing museums for years. That anything that they have that's in the public domain, it's in the best, best interest of humanity to drop all paywalls of any sort, right? I mean, even even if the, even if it's free, even if, in fact, you have to acknowledge something or sign something, you know, it, it's more trouble than, it, than it's worth. Do you, do you read anything by uh, by Ken Hammer, who used to be at the Getty? I have not, no. Um, not he yet. wrote an article, um, let's say it was in DLib or something, 05 maybe, um, and but he's been a, a long proponent of, of this, uh, of these, of these arguments, um, and a lot of museums are really, are really coming around to this. There was just an announcement about this recently. So I, I want to say it was someplace at Yale, or, uh, and, and several, several large university museums involved too, uh, basically saying if it's in the public domain, you can do whatever you want with it. Um, and, and, and this is this is an important step in, in the right direction. And I remember what Ken Hamill wrote in one of these early articles on this on this topic was that there are a lot of museum professionals that seem to believe that 
that somebody's going to jump through hoops, you know, pay you money, fill out forms, whatever, to access your Monet, right? Because your Monet at your museum is the special Monet that people are willing to go through all these hoops for. Fact is, the average person, they don't care, right? If they're looking for some sort of picture that is mostly blues and greens that they can put on a DVD cover, right, they're going to go to Google and search on Monet and take whatever they get, which is going to be plenty. Uh, and the only people that are going to care to fight through the hoops you're putting up are the experts who are going to do it anyway. So, you know, why, why put all these hurdles in, 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 in the way of, of improving access to, 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 your, to your stuff? Um, and, and I think it's a, it's a very compelling argument. You know, if the, if the works of art are in the public domain, there's really no reason for the museum to put any restriction at all on, on the use of those images or, or content about them. Now, obviously, if the work is not in the public domain, then, you, then you've got issues, right? Um, but uh, I'm not sure we're going to be able to resolve those issues here. But I, but I think that there's, that there's questions for works that are in the public domain has a pretty easy answer. Um, and, of course, you know the repercussions of court cases like Bushman versus Correll basically make very clear that the museums can't stand by in copyright. And copyright is not going to protect museums in any of these cases. The only thing that's going to protect museums if they really want to restrict use of those images is uh, basically contract law. You know, they make you sign something. Let's say if I come into the museum, I can't take a picture of this. I can't use this without without your permission. And, uh, and that'll hold up in a court of law. But but I, but I agree with Ken Ham and other people that argue that this is really just ludicrous. I mean, why why put those hoops? Why put those barriers in the way of people using things? using derivatives of things that are already in the public domain, just because you own it. No, it's understandable. Um, and, and I'll just say, let me just say one more thing. I mean, one of the, one of the arguments, of course, is, is, is that the, the um, one of the arguments, of course, is that the uh, museums are worried about money, right? But they're, they're not going to make any money off of this. Uh, it, example I sometimes choose I just do this really quickly Does anybody I only have three people on the phone Other than me, right? Does anybody remember when comic strips Were first put on the internet And they were a week delayed Sometimes two weeks delayed, right? So you couldn't go and read today's Dilbert on the internet You had to wait two weeks Do you remember this? No, I don't even remember uh, this is like 96, 95, um, and uh, the, 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 the comic syndicates were very concerned, right? Because they thought, well, if we make these comics available on the day, on the website, no one's going to buy the newspaper to read the comics. And, of course, this turned out to be completely untrue. <laughs> and, in fact, by putting this barrier up in between the web user and the comic strip, they were uh, cutting into all sorts of profits they hadn't even thought about. So this is why when you go to these comic websites, you can read all the comics for free. And guess what? You want it on a coffee mug? Well, great, 20 bucks. You, you want it on a mouse pad? Great, 20 bucks. You want a framed signed print of this by the author? Great, 50 bucks. You know, it's, they're, they're gaining so much money by making these things available to the public that, that, uh, that it far exceeds anything that they might possibly have lost by making just the content available for free. And this is a this is a metaphor that I really think that the museum should 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 consider. That there's, there's a there's, uh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. There's there's a Go great ahead. paper from Museums in the Web 09. Um, I'm looking at it now, but it was a powerhouse and some other museums in Australia talking about by opening up 
their collections and making them more freely available, they were actually finding um, that they were making just as much money or breaking even, um, or possibly in the future could be making more on things like licensing because more people could actually find what they had to then get into agreements with them. So the, so there's also That's been research to kind right? of prove that this this actually, this argument that, that keeping it behind a wall will earn you money is actually not, doesn't play out in reality. Oh, that's interesting because that kind of dovetails with what we heard from the folks at the VNA um, during the London seminar uh, this summer, where they were talking about you know having so much available online, and that you know companies were finding them and saying we'd like to make this product so that you can sell it in your <laughs> make make this into a product that you can sell in on in the uh, in the museum store. Um, so that, that's interesting. Um, see, I, I, I work in a, you know, I work in an army museum and it, you know, they, they look at it as the collection belongs to the army and therefore the federal government and therefore the people. So it is, um, whatever we, we eventually end up putting online because nothing is online right now. They intend to just let it out there except for the few things where the artists are alive and still would hold the copyright and so is is part of the is part of the the fear of the copyright issue driven by the artists and their estates or you know because we're not talking about things in the in the public domain usually with copyright are we i mean it's see this whole copyright issue is something that i'm only vaguely aware of because my collection really doesn't deal with any of this i mean the uh, right we have we have like maybe 10 things that are copyrighted in, in our entire collection so right well you know it, it, there's a big difference right between obviously dealing dealing with works of art that are that are under copyright and the, and the and those that aren't but what's always intrigued me about these fights is it has always seemed to me that the, the works that the museums are most concerned about tend to be the ones that are in the public domain right you know they they've got this titian and they really want to make sure that everybody knows they've got it right? and they don't want random pictures of it floating around unattributed to them uh so it's often framed as a copyright issue but i think it's more of a of a control issue for a, for a lot of people, and and I think uh, thank you again for for uh, pointing to this this Paula Bray article, um, uh, Museums of Web 09. I'd totally forgotten about it. Um, uh, I just sent myself an email to add it to the reading list for my class uh, because it's it's a great example of of showing the value of of, of open access and open licensing, and that, and that you don't really need to to worry about the monetary aspects of this. Okay. But as I said, um, I don't think we can solve the problem of the the living artists no. and copyright issue. I don't know what we can do about that. No. Um, I would be careful with that article only because it talks about copyright from an Australian perspective, which is actually different. Um, there's some there's some important differences between U.S. and Australian copyright. So so just if you have your students read that, you'll probably need to. Point that I'll out, put and a I, I think, on it, yeah. Yeah, I think I think this just raises the issue of how confusing and and complicated copyright is in the United States. Um, that a lot of us, uh, you know, I've I've studied it in graduate school, and I've taught it to graduate students, and I still get confused about what 
what I need to check on and what I don't. So it's clear as mud, I guess. And I think that's what's interesting <laughs> about these newer alternative licenses like Creative Commons that try to make it extremely clear what you can and can't use something for and how you, know, how you should attribute and that sort of thing. So, um, right. Yeah, and you know, and, and as you say, I mean, it's as clear, it's clear as mud. It's 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 a real mess. Just yesterday, I, I was following a you know, talking about fragmenting interests, right? I was following a, a conversation on Twitter that I don't think ever got resolved, talking about um, we mentioned Blackboard earlier, right? Well, Blackboard's developing sort of some sort of creative Creative Commons license for faculty to uh, to make available their course content as developed as part of Blackboard. But the question, of course, is most universities have all kinds of copyright regulations on stuff that faculty develop for courses. So what good does it do Blackboard to say that you can have this available release in a Creative Commons license if your university says, we own it, you can't release it? Do you see what I mean? You've got It's just conflicting rules everywhere. I don't know how anybody makes sense of it. Uh, uh, there's a reason that I, I, I didn't go to law school, and it's because I, I really have no interest in resolving <laughs> these problems. Right? Somebody else can solve these problems. I just want to do stuff and help people. <laughs> yeah. There are lawyers who find that very, very interesting. Um, right, and more power to them. I'm glad somebody right. does. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's Let's shift gears and talk about website usability a little bit. Um, since, since the 2004 article lost in gallery space, are museums in, as a whole creating, uh, are still creating poorly designed or hard to use websites or the trends? Um, are, are the trends do you see more easily implemented, or, or I'm sorry, more user-centered? Um, yeah, this is this is a this is a tough question for me right now. Because to be honest, I, I really kind of dropped that research line over the past few years, so I haven't really been been taking a a close look at usability on museum websites recently. Uh, so it's just really what I happen to see as I'm going around. I mean, I look at a lot of museum websites all the time. My my so this is a this is a unscientific answer to your question. So my, my gut reaction is that yes, things are things are really improving. That the whole basic idea of user-centered design has really taken off, um, really across all kinds of institutions. Um, you really still have to push it. There's still a lot of people that aren't aware of those basic principles, and and there's there are still usability consultants making really good money helping solve those particular problems. But I, I continue to be impressed by the, um, the improvements to interface design. You know, I think it really is because this user-centered design message has been, has been taking off. Um, uh, you know, it used to be... Do you think that's because of, do you think that's because of the, the mobile apps i mean is is that a ipod ipad droid type of well i think no i think uh, it predates the whole mobile mobile app stuff uh, i mean certainly the whole mobile app thing is is improving usability but uh websites uh, and just take museum websites in particular we're, we're getting a lot better before before that um uh I, I, I did this. I did these series of um, usability labs at the museums and the web conference for like seven years in a row. And um, 
And, and you, you constantly we saw sort of the same basic usability type problems. And, you're, you know, your, your number one problem is that the people who design museum websites have a hard time thinking about things from the user's perspective. So stuff that the users want to see, uh, what are your hours? Uh, how do I get there? Is there a place to park? Do you have any job openings? You know, those things can be very hard to find, whereas information about the latest, greatest, newest exhibit you have is going to be prominently positioned on, on, on the main page. So there, so there can be a bit of a disconnect there and then you still have that problem now but the the reason I think the overall designs have been improving may have less to do with the fact that people are are realizing user-centered design is important and more to do with the fact that people have realized that the museum websites important um, I it wasn't all that long ago that museum directors were still sort of treating the website as sort of a you know a red-haired stepchild right um, it was something that maybe they'd throw a little money to, but they were more interested in the visitors coming in through the door. Uh, and I think that, that tide has really turned. Um, now, I don't think the pendulum swung all the way over, but, uh, but there's, it's a lot easier for the people who are in charge of the museum website to argue, this has got to look good. You know, this is our front page to millions and millions of people. <laughs> this is the door that they're coming in. And, and we... We, we have to we have to solve these problems. We can't have a uh, a poorly designed front door on on the internet. You know, if your if the front door to your building wouldn't open, right, you wouldn't you wouldn't go around waving your hands and say, oh well, I guess that doesn't matter. Or maybe I'll post a sign up on the front door explaining what the problem is, and there's some secret way you can jiggle the lock or whatever to get it to open. No, you'd fix the door. And I think that's what we've been seeing when people realizing, I need to fix the door. I need to fix the website. Right. <clears throat> Well, that being said, then what are the biggest mistakes that you see museums making right now in regards to their websites and mobile apps, in your opinion? Well, that's that's, that's a tough one for me to, to really to really answer. Um, you know, people used to ask me what's What's the secret to making a really good museum website? And they always got very upset when I would say there isn't a secret, right? There's no, there's no magic design out there. There's no magic template we're keeping hidden from you. And if you just use this template, everything's going to be fine, right? Mm -hmm. the, the silver bullet, if there is one, is the fact that you need to sit down with your users. You need to actually figure out what their needs are and whether or not the interface that you've built and the website that you've built is actually helping them achieve those goals and meet those needs. And if it's not, you have to redesign. And you have to keep going back to your visitors and asking them again and again and again until you get it right. And a lot of people didn't like to hear that because it sounds like a lot of work. And guess what? It is a lot of work. But if, if you want to build a website that works, if you want to build any kind of interface that works, app, website, you name it, it, it takes a lot of working with the, with the end users. Um, so if there's, a, you know, if there's a number one mistake that people still make, I mean, that's it. That's it. They, they assume that they know what the end users want, and they make design decisions based on their assumptions, and then their assumptions end up to be wrong. Uh, it's an easy mistake to make, especially if you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I will point out that I'll put a plug for low-cost usability, uh, that uh, a usability and user testing doesn't need to be expensive. You can do a lot with, like, some random strangers you grab off the street or passing through your gallery, right? Um, you really just need some, somebody that it will help you see things through somebody else's eyes. 
because you get so fixated on the, the interface you developed, you can't you can't imagine how somebody else will look at it. Yeah, actually, the students are doing some mini versions of that this week. They're working on a card sorting activity to you know think about navigation from a user perspective, and they'll be doing sort of wireframe user testing later in the semester. So really trying to drive home that point, though I would say that a lot of us in museums often find that part of the process gets sort of compressed or skipped because of some some other deadline or reason that we have to keep moving and just go with what we have kind of. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, that and that, that still happens a lot, even for those of us who preach. Uh, User-centered design. Um, it's oh, really yeah, easy don't even, to don't even get, get me started on our website here at the School of Library Information Studies, which is in desperate need of an overhaul, and there's no money and there's no time. You know, and it's just, I feel terrible. <laughs> it makes you feel like a hypocrite. <laughs> but I'm not in charge of our well, website. There's nothing yeah. I can do, right? <laughs> and another challenge, you know, at, at <laughs> I always find it ironic because we're, you know, we're at the American History Museum, so our websites go up, and then we we never kill them because they're history, um, right. in and then of themselves. But Except so, sometimes they kill. Sometimes yeah. they get killed. I'm still. I, uh, you, do you know Matt MacArthur? Yes. Yeah, right, well, we work in the same you, you department. Can, yeah. Oh, right. Well, you can joke with him about this, right, because he's still mad that oh, – I'm sorry, I'm still mad that that when they moved the um, – oh, shoot, what was it called? Uh, the Museum Without Walls, the uh, the Smithsonian Without Walls, oh, the, 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 yeah. think, the Think Map thing to a different server. It broke the JavaScript that he was never able to get it fixed. So yes, that. that's the only the only time our websites go offline is if the technology itself breaks. But, right. you know, we've got websites from – the mid 90s, early 90s, I think, um, that are just you know plain old HTML that look to a 2011 user awful. I mean, just sort of like ridiculous, laughable. But they have really interesting content on them. Now, are we going to be able to ever go back and kind of upgrade all of those what we call like legacy sites? That would be a huge task for us. So I think now we're trying to build build things to be more sustainable moving forward, whereas I don't even think we were thinking of that 10 years ago. You know, how is this going to work 10 years from now? <laughs> um, but it's I mean, a big it, challenge it, if you, if you, how you actually maintain that for the long haul is a big challenge. Right. And and, there, and, 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 and you, uh, you made this very clear. I just want to reinforce that there's really two issues there. That One, there, there is no need to go back and redesign these legacy websites, right? They are what they are. They're history. And, and, you want, and you want to leave them as they are. But on the other hand, you want to make sure that the content is still accessible. And this is, this is a huge problem. I, and, uh, I how many boxes of five and a quarter floppy disks do I have in my office? I, I don't even know what's on those disks. I don't even have any way to read them. And if I did have any way to read them, they're probably no longer readable. Um, you know, and this is a problem that we that we all have. And um, and th this is the challenge. Uh, it's not so much keeping the design going, but keeping the content available. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, is Amber still on the call? Or are other people still on the call? I just want to make sure that if there are other questions that have come up that um, we can go ahead and ask them. Well, I'm still here. I am amazed by all of this stuff because I never think about it. In a really small institution, we have absolutely no budget for any technology stuff, and it's amazing we even have a Facebook page. So I'm learning lots of things. But you have a Facebook page, right? Yes. I mean, and th yes. th this is – 
and this is the point I was making earlier, that as every year goes by, people are helping you get over this hurdle faster. Right? You don't need to go and build a website. You at least can have an online presence on Facebook. Right? You don't need to build your own social media portal to reach your users. You can use Twitter. Um, uh, so it still takes time, um, but, it's, but it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier than, than even taking an open source solution. You know, people always point to open source as if it's some sort of magic free thing. Of course, it's not, right? Because if you don't have the technology to install it, you don't have the personnel to install it, you don't have the time to maintain it, it's not free at all. Anyway, go ahead. Right, you were saying I interrupted. No, that's a, that's a good point. Um, my job I've seen in just eight years has become less and less about technology and more and more about communicating. So you say easier. It's easier in terms of people don't need necessarily the tech skills, but not always easier to, you know, the other things are things like keeping up and knowing how to communicate in an appropriate way on different platforms and that sort of thing. So it seems like exactly. the skills this, this is the point I was saying earlier about the, the so many different types of technologies that are available and how we get pulled in so many different directions, right? The technology is not the problem. The technology never was the problem. The problem is the amount of time that we have to take to communicate, to spend all this time doing all of this work. Well, I mean, what what makes it easy now is it, it seems to me is like if you, if you look at like Facebook and Twitter and WordPress as as the blog, that's infrastructure, and somebody came along and built that, and now you know we can we can put our own content onto the infrastructure, but when before you had to actually build it from the ground up. You had to build your own infrastructure and maintain it and and, and then and then fill it with content. Now, you know, Facebook does it for us instead of us having to host our own, you know, build our own website. And, and there's an there's an entire problem wrapped around this that we haven't even had a chance to, to get into and I know we're rapidly running out of time, but yeah. Um I I did some research a few years ago looking at the the use of um, personal digital collection systems on museum websites. Uh, you, you know, you, I'm sure you're familiar with these, right? I mean, the Met has one. Lots of places have one. Um, you, you're searching their database, and you find things you like, and you add it to a collection, and you maintain a collection on the website. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, you know, the challenge that museums have had there is that they could spend a lot of time and money investing in building a system on their website, but it's never going to be as good as, say, Flickr, nor is it ever going to work outside of their institution. And all our users are going to say is, this is great, but uh, I want something that also will work at all these other museums too, <laughs> right? So, hmm. uh, so a lot of museums have been, taking, have been taking a hard look at all the time they're investing in these systems and saying, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't a good investment of our time. Maybe instead we should be finding ways to make all the stuff that we can put on Flickr on Flickr and let them manage it. There are all kinds of problems with that too. Like you know, if Flickr goes belly up, what do we all do? Uh, but uh, but these are these are critical critical issues that have far less to do with the technology and more about. And this is what Amber was saying, right? More about the time that you have for communicating and for uh, for managing. I think you're also seeing more museums trying to collaborate on tools that then multiple museums can use together or tweak for themselves. Like the IMA, you know, built a mobile platform for museums and has made that code available to any museum that wants to use it. I think we're seeing more and more of that so that we're developing as a community rather in rather than in these little silos. 
and, and I think that is working really well. I, I think what's coming out of it is, is, is really good stuff. You know, my, my worry is always, like, you know, that, you know there's, a, there's an XKCD that sums this up very well where the, where the figure says, uh, I can't believe there's 14 different competing standards for this one particular thing, right? Uh, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to come up with one standard that's going to put it all together, right? <laughs> and one week later, right, there are now 15 different competing standards. <laughs> so that that's always been my worry about this sort of thing. But I think we're having a lot of – I think people are starting to come together on, on these tools. And, and in part, I think it's the open source community that is helping with that because because a a, a winner can actually come to the top, and everybody can, can start to work on it together. So. Okay. Well, Paul, I uh, I want to really thank you for um, – for bearing with us once again with with all of the trouble last week and coming back again and and chatting with us, this has been really great. Oh, you are welcome. I, I was just it's just been a delight to to talk to everybody, and uh, it's just it's it's so wonderful to know that that program's doing so well at Johns Hopkins, and everybody seems to be really excited, and um, and I'm just you know happy to pitch in however I can. Great, thank uh, you. It was nice to meet you virtually. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. In multiple media. Yes. <laughs> Don't yes. Connect, telephone, yeah. <laughs> so All right, you know, if, if you're ever at the Museum Computer Network or Museums in the Web or any of those sorts of things, please uh, please find me and say hi, okay? Definitely. Okay. Alrighty. Bye. All right, bye, bye everybody. Have a good night. You too. Bye.